Bible's library is full of all kinds of books. Stories, songs, verse, wisdom sayings, warnings, good news, fables, arguments, sermons, letters, and spectacular visions. It's got it all. But if you back up, way up, and look down on this ancient library from 10,000 feet, you could say that the Bible's shelves are full of poetry, as long as you define poetry in the ancient sense of the term. The root of the word is poesis, that's ancient Greek for the act of making or the act of creating. And of course, every story or song or gospel or vision has to be made. And for the ancient Greeks, the poet was someone who was divinely inspired to make a story or saga or song that was worth knowing, because if you knew them, they could help you live and thrive. That's who a poet was in the ancient world. They would be inspired by a muse. You know, the muses, the goddesses of the arts and sciences, daughters of Zeus. That's what the ancient Greeks thought. And the ancient Hebrews had a similar idea, a human being divinely inspired, not by the muses, but by the God of Abraham and Sarah. And these inspired poets, these makers of proclamations and books, were called prophets. And the original prophet, the most prestigious of them all, was Moses, who was thought to be the author of the Bible's first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, And so, while the Bible isn't all poetry in the modern sense, it doesn't all rhyme, it's not all written in verse, it nevertheless is full of different kinds of poesis, making of poetry in this broad ancient sense. And as they created the canon of the Bible, curating the library, our ancestors chose the best poesis they could find, the most inspired and inspiring. The first canonical New Testament list of books that matches the Bible as we know it today, those lists start appearing about 350 years after Jesus' death. So as they curated the poetic library, our ancestors took their time, living with various books, trying them out, passing them down, generation to generation, assessing their quality through experience, you know, through test drives, The poetic proof was in the pudding. The poesis they found most illuminating, most compelling, most radiant and helpful, well, those ended up in the library. And so who better to help us roam these shelves and understand all this poesis than some of the best poets of our own day? Mary Oliver, for example, who so often explores spiritual themes in her work, or E.E. Cummings, the son of a pastor in Greater Boston, who did likewise. Or indeed, from a different angle, the poetry of creation itself, the so-called Book of Nature, which so often inspired Oliver and Cummings, and also the biblical poets, the authors of Genesis and Matthew and all the rest. And so that's what we'll do these next four episodes. We'll walk alongside Oliver and Cummings and listen to the poetic songs of creation in order to understand more deeply the poesis, the making in the Bible's library. We'll begin at the beginning, the church's new year, the season of Advent, the four weeks of preparation for the wonders of Christmas Day. 
I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. So, we begin at the beginning. The beginning of the year. The church year, the first week of the season of Advent. Not the trumpets of Easter, or the fires of Pentecost, or even the comforting carols of Christmas morning. Instead, the Christian year begins in shadows. Shadows of despair, conflict, sorrow, hate, indifference. You know how a film will sometimes begin by flashing forward to a dramatic scene at the end of the story? to give us a sense of the stakes and where things are headed? Well, likewise, here, at the year's beginning, we flash forward to the end. In the Gospel of Matthew, near the very end of Jesus' public ministry, as the shadows gather, as the cross approaches, Jesus says to his followers, Keep awake, be ready, for your God, your rescue, your redemption is coming at an unexpected hour like a thief in the night. So stay alert, pay attention, take care to notice what you might otherwise ignore or overlook. That's the posture of Advent, of preparing for Christmas, for God's arrival at an unexpected hour. Keep awake, be ready. We begin at the beginning, the beginning of the day. In the decades she lived in Provincetown, out on the very tip of Cape Cod in Massachusetts, Mary Oliver used to begin most days with an early morning walk through the province lands, part of the Cape Cod National Seashore, full of forests and ponds and dunes. She always had her notebook with her, just in case inspiration would strike and it's said that she hid pencils in the trees along the trails, so she'd never be without one. Keep awake. Be ready. In her classic poem, Yes, No, she puts it this way. How important it is to walk along, not in haste, but slowly, looking at everything and calling out, Yes, No. The swan, for all his pomp, his robes of grass and petals, wants only to be allowed to live on the nameless pond. The cat briar is without fault. The water thrushes, down among the sloppy rocks, are going crazy with happiness. Imagination is better than a sharp instrument. To pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. We begin at the beginning, the birthday of the sun. Edward Estlin Cummings' first love was painting, but he became widely known as one of the most inventive among a new group of modernist poets, experimenting with syntax, punctuation, and, as a painter would, visual layout on the page. One of his most famous poems begins... I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. It's often read as a springtime poem or a joyful lyric of summer, 
but its reference to the sun's birthday evokes the winter solstice, the turning of the cosmic tide when the encroaching night is held back, and the light of day begins to lengthen. This is the luminous milestone on which the poetry of Christmas is based. We have no idea, of course, what time of year it was in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, but the poesis, the poetry, is clear. Our ancestors fixed the date at the turning point, the hinge, when the shadows give way to the light, when death and despair give way to life and hope, and the sun is born. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably Earth. In this modern twist on an Elizabethan sonnet, Cummings ends with a couplet, a celebration of what this encounter with creation has done for him. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. And so, on one hand, with Mary Oliver, the invitation is to walk along, not in haste, but slowly, looking at everything and calling out yes and no. To pay attention, she says, this is our endless and proper work. Not just a good idea or a fruitful exercise, but really a posture, the posture, the posture we were born for, to be awake, to be ready. And on the other hand, with E.E. Cummings, the invitation is to wake up, to have our ears awakened, our eyes opened, the ears of our ears, the eyes of our eyes, to be renewed by giving thanks for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes, to cultivate our attention and our amazement. For God is coming, your redemption is coming, Emmanuel, God with us, is coming at an unexpected hour. Well, I think I know the hour, right? I'm pretty sure it's December 25th, or the Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock, or 8 o'clock, or 11.30, or whatever. I'm pretty sure I know the hour. And that's just it. The temptation here is to domesticate the whole thing, to turn it into clockwork, routine, one more Christmas on the calendar. But listen, says Jesus, says Mary, says Estelin, God doesn't arrive like that, like a train coming in on time. God arrives like a thief in the night. At every turn in the Christmas story, God subverts expectations, confounds conventions, zigs when we think God will zag, If you want to be there, to be a part of it, to be renewed by it, to be changed, to be enlivened, you've got to be awake in the first place and ready. 
So yes, Advent is a season of waiting, but the waiting we're talking about here is a kind of rehearsing. It's active, it's participatory, it's getting up and out for an early morning walk, or a late afternoon walk for that matter. It's paying attention to the birds and the trees, it's giving thanks for the sky and the illimitable earth, it's being willing to join in the ongoing song. What these poets are responding to, after all, is the divine poet, the maker of heaven and earth, the swan and the sun. We are made, each one of us, a maker in the image of the maker, a poet in the image of the divine poet. Above all, Advent is for reclaiming that deepest identity. It's for getting back to basics, back to the beginning, just before dawn. Scientists have long wondered why birds wake and sing so early, choosing the hours before and during sunrise to raise their beautiful racket, what ornithologists call the dawn chorus. There are many theories. For example, one theory is that the early morning shadows provide a cloak of protection, making it harder for predators to see them as they lift their voices. For our part, when night falls, we sometimes feel afraid but what if we followed the birds and reframed the shadows as a cloak of protection, a sanctuary, as we do the slow, quiet work of bringing more hope into the world? Praying, studying, connecting, organizing, building relationships, doing the things that lift our spirits. In that deep blue space between darkness and light, the dawn chorus usually begins quietly, with only a few singers, say a couple of robins or thrushes. But soon, thanks be to God, these early birds are joined by others, and then still others, until the morning fills with sound and glory. Advent is the church's dawn chorus. It starts in the silence, in the shadows, and looks to the light. Each week, we gather together to listen and sing, sometimes just a few of us, sometimes quietly at first, proclaiming that in the end, the night will give way to the day. Winter will give way to spring, despair to hope, war to peace, grief to joy, violence to love. And God will come again the sun will rise, and with it, the amazing day. But for now, in this early twilight, to pay attention is our endless and proper work. To stay awake and be ready. To take note and give thanks for everything that is and everything that is to come. The dawn chorus, heralding the day, not yet here, but on its way. What the Bible's library offers this time of year is the poetry of Christmas. And this poetry, this poesis, is not only something we can hear and see and appreciate, it's something we can enter into, a poetry through which we can live and thrive.
Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. And if you want to go deeper, SALT has downloadable devotionals based on Mary Oliver's poetry, E.E. Cummings' poetry, and the wonders of birds. You can check out all three in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.